we'll jump in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you bringing us here today to, to gather with your people, to, to sit under your word preached later and, and taught in the Sunday school hour. Pray that as we continue to think about the topic of prayer and specifically um, just some common excuses that, that we give for, for not praying, that you would convict us, but, but also assure us of the, the grace that is found in, in Jesus Christ. That we don't need to be burdened because of our, our sin, but that we can run to you and find forgiveness and that we can seek to strive to be obedient in our lives through the power of your spirit that you have sent to, to indwell us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump back in our series through the book Praying with Paul. And today we're going to start a two-part lesson over chapters 7 and 8 of the book, if you're, if you're reading. And both of these lessons center around the topic of overcoming excuses or hurdles for, for not praying. And this is a topic that Carson's brought up quite a bit so far in the book, especially in the, the application sections where he's challenged the reader, he's challenged us to consider the amount of time that we're spending in prayer. And, and chapter 7 deals primarily then with the common excuses that Christians have or that Christians give for their lack of prayer or for their lack of discipline in praying. And so the purpose of the chapter is to expose those excuses and potentially convict us so that we can that we can guard against them, that we can begin killing them, so that we can be more faithful in our prayer lives. And then uh, a helpful thing he does in this chapter is he, we, he gives responses, or what he calls responses that Scripture gives to these excuses. So he goes to the Word for each of this excuse to see how, how the Bible would, or God would, through the Bible, respond to these common excuses. So the hope is maybe you identify with some of these, hopefully not all of them, but it's okay. Maybe there's some that come to your mind that we can talk about um, as these, these excuses. Um, and then chapter 8 deals with kind of the, the solution, how the goal of overcoming some of these excuses in our prayer lives. And so the, the goal being to have more consistent and faithful prayer lives. So let's jump into chapter 7. And the first excuse, Carson says, that is, is popular among Christians for, for a lack of prayer is the I am too busy to pray excuse. I'm too busy to pray excuse. So I've heard this talked about quite a bit and, and read uh, quite a bit about this in Christian circles, and I think Carson has a lot of helpful helpful stuff in this section that we're not going to be able to get to all of it, but um, if you want to read it, it's, it's very beneficial. But one thing Carson points out that's very helpful is that he argues ours is, a, is an age that is not a, a contemplative age, meaning in our culture we find value and worth primarily in, in what we do. So we tend to be a people that, that works a lot, and if we're not working, we like to, to entertain ourselves through 
television and, and computer screens, which this entertainment culture also tends to lead itself for us to not be a contemplative culture or, or a thinking culture. And the result of this work, task-oriented, entertainment-driven culture is that we do not, by and large, take time to just think and meditate and wonder and just analyze things, even just daydream. It's very foreign for a lot of us to just sit and not do anything physically or not do anything that is entertaining to, to our minds, productive, and just contemplate on things. And one result of living in an age like this is that we seldom have time to just think about things, then we, then we seldom have time to pray, because prayer involves the discipline of our minds, the discipline of our thought lives, which means we need to have time to be pursuing our thought lives and thinking. I think Carson's exactly right here. He's pressing on, on something that, that probably affects all of us. So it may feel as if we're too busy to pray, pray because we actually don't have a category or habits in our lives that allow for times, even extended times of deep contemplation and thought. So prayer flows more naturally out of a, as you're contemplating things, as you have a contemplative disposition. So it's important to recognize the, the uphill battle I think we all face in seeking to pray more. It really goes against some of our intuitions of living in this culture, living in this, this age. But a key insight here that I found very helpful is that it's not actually that we're, we're too busy to pray. I think if all of us gave an honest assessment of our lives, we would conclude that, that we're not actually too busy to pray. That, that's, that would be a ridiculous thing to say on the face of it. But regardless, if it's objectively not true that we're too busy. I think we, we're very easily, it's very easy to feel, and we often feel too busy to pray. So whether we actually are or not, I think that it is a common feeling that we do feel that we are, if that makes sense. And that's where it's helpful to think about the practicality of prayer and the necessity of prayer. Right? It helps combat this excuse for not praying. As Carson argues, it's utterly stupid to not pray because of busyness with tasks if we understand what prayer is. Right? It, it just actually makes no sense if we truly understand what prayer is. Our communion with God, in a necessary means for our growth and our faithfulness and, and, and bearing fruit in this life, prayer is essential to that. That's what, that's what prayer is. And the danger of busyness is not just with, with the task and works that we need to do with, to, to survive, there's also a particular danger that we become busy with, with ministry, with our service to the Lord that we don't pray. We become so busy with the things that we're doing for the Lord that we neglect prayer, which is even more dumb if we think about it because we're powerless in ourselves to, to produce fruit in our ministry without God working. So it, it really makes no sense to not ask God to bless and cause our ministries to, to be fruitful. In short, 
to, to pray to Him, to seek the Lord in our times of devotion. And so just reminding ourselves from time to time of these truths, I think it's a helpful way to, to combat this lie of busyness. That, yeah, we'll get to it. Carson goes to, to two scriptures um, that, that address this issue. First is the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. This is a pretty practical story of how Jesus views our, our busyness with tasks. Martha was busy with the household task of hosting. She grew resentful of her sister Mary, who was not helping but, but sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. And the text makes clear Martha wasn't doing unimportant things. She wasn't just wasting time. She was doing productive, good things, hosting others, feeding people. But Martha grows so frustrated that she tells Jesus to tell her Mary to, to help her serve. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So it seems just a very basic principle that's clear from this text is that time spent in spiritual nourishment, which, which I would say includes prayer, is important, is really important. So important, you should prioritize it even over other good tasks, important tasks. So for Jesus, there really should never be such a thing as too busy to pray because it is, should be the main priority in your life. Another pretty interesting text Carson goes to is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. This text is dealing with marriage and, and sexual relations within the marriage covenant. And Paul's main point and command here is that married couples should meet each other's sexual needs. And he says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says clearly here that the, the regular pattern of the married couple should meet each other's physical needs, but there could be a suspension of that regular practice, of that physical act, but the suspension must meet three conditions, as, as Carson points out from us from the text. So first, there must be mutual consent. Second, the purpose must be that they wish to devote themselves to prayer. So that's kind of the only purpose he gives to, sus to suspend this act. And third, the suspension must be temporary. Now how this ties to busyness is that Paul recognizes there will be seasons in a married couple's life, especially in the ancient context in which he was writing, where it may be too busy to engage in marriage relations. And the only thing that Paul allows for a suspension of that act is prayer, which this gives a good principle as well because it, it shows us something about Paul's evaluation of how important prayer is. It's the only thing, it's the only practice you can stop the most important act in marriage for. But this section just, just lays out good principles or, or lessons for us to consider. And that is, if you're too busy to pray, 
So the most simple thing you can do is to cut something out of your life. It's not worth gaining worldly success by, by working yourself to death if you quit or neglect praying. It's not worth entertaining yourself at the expense of losing time with the Lord in prayer. It's not even worth filling up your life with many good ministries and, and service if it causes you to neglect prayer. So the, the big hammer home principle here is if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed or too busy to pray, then the most simple thing you can do is to, to eliminate something because prayer is should and must be a priority in the life of the Christian. The, the second excuse Carson lays out is the I feel too spiritually dry to pray excuse. I feel too spiritually dry, not filled up enough to pray. So this is probably a feeling all of us have felt at some time in, in our Christian life. And the feeling of maybe being too discouraged or too empty to pray. And what triggers this type of feeling, it can be a lot of different things. Carson points out it could be something as simple as, as not getting enough sleep, right, the night before, and you, you grow up and you're, I mean, you, you, you wake up and you're grumpy, right, that can affect your, your disposition of wanting to pray. Or it could be something like being emotionally hurt by someone that's close to you, someone that, that, that you love hurt you by their, their sinning against you. That could lead to a discouragement that leads to a lack of prayer. We could be overly stressed, emotionally stretched. There's just a, a vast amount of things that can lead us to feel, ah, I just don't got it today, God. I just, I just can't come before you in prayer. And whatever it is, there's a danger of neglecting to pray because we don't feel like it. That's kind of the, the core issue here, that we don't feel like it. And Carson points out what he calls two monstrous presuppositions, which is a great phrase, monstrous presuppositions that lie behind this excuse for not praying. The first is the lie that the acceptability of my approach to God in prayer should be tied to how I feel. The acceptability of my approach to God in prayer should be tied to how I feel. Right? That's the lie presupposition that, that's often believed. And it's simply not true because the, the basis for any Christian's approaching our Heavenly Father on His throne in prayer, the only basis we have for that is Christ's sufficient mediating work on our behalf. Right? It's the only ground for our approaching God in prayer. Notice that has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our feelings or how we feel about our lives. It's also a good reminder we need to constantly remind ourselves with if, if we do feel spiritually dry, if we do feel empty. Carson writes, we need to remind ourselves that the sole reasons why God accepts us in our prayers is the grace that he has bestowed upon us in the person and work of his son. That's a great reminder that we constantly need to be thinking through. The, the second unacceptable presupposition behind this, this attitude of feeling spiritually dry is, that our, is, is the lie 
that our prayers are somehow diminished when we do not feel like praying. So maybe we're like, well, yeah, I'll pray, but you know, these, these prayers just, just kind of stink. That type of feeling. This is, a, a fundamentally, this is a, a self-centered view of prayer, which is not good. And it puts our feelings as the determining factor of our actions. So it's very similar to the first presupposition. But again, it's not what we are to do as Christians. We, we are to be, we're called to be faithful in prayer, regardless of our feelings, regardless of the state of, of us feeling spiritually dry or empty. Meaning we pray regardless of our feelings and of our affections at any given time. Right? You, you know you can have good, effective, Bible-saturated prayer even when you're feeling kind of just blah and, and melancholy. You can. Because the basis of the power of prayer is not us. It's not our emotions. That's not what makes prayer powerful. So I think the contrary is also true. You can be in a very positive emotional and even positive spiritually state and pray very ineffectively because it's not the basis of the effectiveness of our prayers. Carson goes to two biblical texts. We'll just go to one that he points out. Both of them are, are parables. We'll look at the one in Luke 18. This is the parable of the persistent widow. So it's a persistent widow. She takes her case to a corrupt judge. And eventually, the widow's persistence pays off and the judge gives her justice. And Jesus then makes the point that, that God will give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. Or who are persistent to him in prayer. The point is not that God is, is like the corrupt judge. The argument is from, from a lesser to greater. So the, the point is, if a corrupt judge will give justice to the persistent, how much more will the just and perfect God give justice to the persistent? And to the point, Jesus is telling his followers that we should be persistent in prayer and not lose heart. But notice, the, the focus is not on our feelings or if, if we want to pray or if we, 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 we meet this quota of fullness spiritually, and then we'll pray. The focus is on persistence, which is a, a discipline of, uh, oh man, the word just left me. Someone help me. Synonym for persistence. It's a discipline of persistence. There we go. <laughs> Perseverance, meaning we have to do it, even when we don't feel like it, right? And what's implicit here in this parable is the assumption that God may not immediately answer our prayers. Why else would we need to be per persistent in something if God just answers immediately, right? The whole idea of being persistent that Jesus is talking about means there might be seasons, years, decades, where, where you pray for something. And that should help us I think just if we, if we think about it like that, it helps us not depend on our feelings or, or feeling spiritually dry to pray. God's desire is, is for us to trust Him, for us to persevere in prayer. Carson writes, in short, in prayer as in other areas of life, God wants us to trust and obey. 
God wants us to trust and obey. Now, this doesn't mean, I'll pause here for some comments, questions. I don't think this means we shouldn't just be content with being spiritually dry or like, oh, you know, kind of be Eeyores all the time. Right? We, there, there's things we can do. We can, we can read great uh, Christian literature, the Puritans. You could read the scriptures. You can delight in the Psalms to kind of fill up spiritually. You can spend time together in the community of the saints. There's things that we can do, so we don't need to be just content with being melancholy or spiritually dry. But the point is, we can't ever use that as an excuse to neglect the spiritual disciplines, including prayer. So I'll pause here for any comments, questions. Oh, Rob, just adjusting your glasses. I know you, I know you could. <laughs> Right, the next excuse Carson writes about, I think it might be one of the worst excuses that, that we can come up with, and it's that the excuse of, I don't feel the need to pray. I don't, I don't actually feel any need to pray, and it's dangerous because, or worse in some ways, because it's tricky to identify, because most of us aren't brash enough to say, or even... Maybe we don't even self-consciously reason this way that, that we're too important or too self-sufficient to pray. Right? Most Christians will not say something like that. We might not even be aware that we're, we're thinking something like that or, or living in that way, which makes this one kind of particularly dangerous. Instead, Carson argues what typically happens to us when we fall into this excuse is we, we affirm the importance of prayer, but we don't actually feel the need to pray in our own lives. So what inevitably happens is we pray less and less and less. And so if, if we're honest in, in seasons like this, it's just not that important to us. We don't value it that much, so we don't do it. And this typically happens or I, I would say it's a particular danger in, in the seasons where things are going very good, where God, God is, there's an abundance of blessing in your life. We're, not, we're more prone towards self-sufficiency, which leads to a feeling of not needing to pray when life is going well. Now, this isn't the case all the time, but I'm just saying, I think it's a, a particular danger that we need to be aware of. So what does God say in response to this? One thing that's clear from the scriptures as a whole is that God in his kindness will lower our station by bringing suffering into our lives. So it kind of will reshape how you view suffering as a, a, a blessing, a kindness that God will give you to, to, to tear away any self-sufficiency you have. God clearly does that all throughout the, the scriptures. Carson calls this God taking us down a peg or two so that we don't rely on any self-sufficiency. I think it's a good way to think about it. But this idea that, it, that it's more dangerous when, when prosperity is occurring to neglect God is found, I think, is found in different parts of scripture. Carson cites the, the Gibeonite deception in Joshua 9 and, and Hezekiah's self-confidence that led him or led to a falling with the, the Babylonians. And the point being, again, is that when we're prone to self-sufficiency, so when I say self-sufficiency, you think 
not relying upon God, which means not going to God in prayer, when we're prone to self-sufficiency, then we can grow in our sense that, that we don't need God, that we don't need to pursue Him in prayer. So this is just another really practical point that, that Carson points out for us, to, for us to be aware of and to keep in mind and on guard against as we live the Christian life. Because there are going to be seasons of, of suffering and pain and seasons of, of relative peace and, and blessing. And so we need to be aware of the dangers of, of those. The, the next excuse is, I feel too bitter to pray. I feel too bitter or, or resentful to pray. Now, this is another excuse I think all of us might encounter throughout the, the Christian life to some extent or another, and that's because we all live in this world which is characterized by sin. It's full of sinners who sin against us in various ways. And it's a very difficult thing a very difficult thing to be sinned against, to have injustice occur to you, to be hurt by other humans. It's no small thing. It's very painful to have an injustice incurred upon yourself. And it's very easy then to get a spirit of revenge, a spirit of resentment that often leads to a lack of prayer especially thinking about praying for the ones that, that hurt us, which is our Lord's command. That we must pray for our enemies. We must pray for those who, who even persecute us. We may be tempted, especially when sinned against in, in grievous ways, to think along the lines of, how can I be expected to pray when I've suffered so much? Have you seen the injustice I've gone through? How do you expect me to pray? How do you expect me to pray for that person? That's, that's kind of how this, this excuse, this temptation comes out in the Christian life. Now, there's also those who I would say are, are more nefarious, and they just wallow in self-pity. Maybe they create a lifestyle of self-pity and resentment that results in a lack of prayer. And they begin to enjoy the life they've built on the foundation of resentment. So their whole life is characterized by, by hatred and resentment of those who sinned against them. And they don't pray because they know that it would lead them to eliminate that sin of resentment and self-pity they've grown to cherish. But notice both types of people neglect to pray as they ought because of resentment. But I'd say the, the latter example is, is much more high-handed, a much more serious and egregious sin of holding resentment against another, which leads to, to less prayer. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, quite a bit. Jesus says in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, very famous words from Jesus. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, not, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So again, Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer with the truth that, that non-forgiveness, so resentment, 
is it's literally not an option for the Christian. It's not, a, it's not even an avenue that we can entertain, that we can go down. If we want our sins forgiven, there must be forgiven. We must forgive. Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus also says that if you're praying and you hold anything against someone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. It's the same principle. Carson writes well here, I think, to, to clarify what these statements are and are not saying. He says, the idea is not that by our act of forgiving others, we some, somehow earn the Father's forgiveness, but that by our forgiving others, we demonstrate we really want the Father's forgiveness. Or by such, such an approach to God, we signal that our repentance is genuine, that we've actually been forgiven, and our contrition is real. The point of the, the New Testament and the Scriptures as a whole, over and over again, is that in light of the incredible forgiveness that we have received in Christ, by His bearing our guilt on the cross, atoning for our sins, right, all of those things that we celebrate, the virtue of that, what right do we have to withhold forgiveness? That's the biblical ethic. So all of this is just kind of biblical ammunition we can store up to, to wipe out this, this, I would say, kind of persistent lie in our age of, of resentment and bitterness against those who've hurt us. So we need to war against this, this plague of, of bitterness and resentment. And I would say even more so, well, I don't know, I'm not a like, great historian, but maybe even more particularly in our age because we live in a culture that, that glorifies victimhood all over the place in a lot of ways. So it's now virtuous to be a victim. And to, it's virtuous, it's virtuous to, to ruthlessly resent our, our oppressors and those who have sinned against us in, in macro ways, people groups. So resentment and bitterness are the fruit of a lot of the secular worldviews that are being taught and, and disseminated in our culture. And it's so anti-Christian. It's so anti-Christian. It's, it's, it's crazy, honestly. Because the Christian worldview is actually flipped. It's the opposite. We forgive those who sin against us. Even those who, who grievously sin against us, always. Because we know fundamentally that we are the chief guilty parties. We are actually the oppressors. We enact injustice that our Savior had to die for. Right, right? That leads to, to humility. That leads to an antidote against resentment. And it will lead to, to prayer. Two more excuses, unless anyone has questions, comments. Two more excuses Carson lays out in chapter 7. First is the, the, I am too ashamed to pray. Or I feel too much shame to pray. And the shame Carson's talking about here is, is the shame or guilt over sin, specifically. Which typically leads to a running from God. A running away from God, which means not approaching God in prayer, not, not being disciplined in our prayer. And so we can think of it, it's kind of, it is a consequence of sin. 
in some respect. A lack of prayer is a consequence of living in sin. We see this in the very first story of the Bible. Carson points out Adam and Eve. I wrote Evan. That's definitely not true. Adam and Eve ran away and hid from Yahweh after they they violated his command. Shame causes them to run from, hide from the Lord. And in the same way, in our current state, it can cause prayerlessness. So what's, what's our response to be to this? Well, the first thing to acknowledge is that the, even from the story in Genesis, that there is no hiding from God. So it's kind of utterly silly to, to run from God in, in the sense of not praying to Him about it. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You can't actually hide from God. That's the point. He knows every single thing you've done. He knows every single thing you will do. Everything. But notice what Carson's arguing here. He isn't saying we shouldn't feel shame for our sin. Shame is actually a, can be a proper response when we transgress God's commands, when we transgress God's law. It's a proper response. But that shame is not a proper ground to neglect prayer say the guilt, because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. This is similar to the, the first excuse. It's futile to run or hide from God because it's, it's not possible to do. Instead, shame over our, our sin should actually drive us towards more prayer. It should drive us closer to God, because we need to go to the one who, the only one who's able to forgive our sins. The only one who is able to, to cleanse our conscience, to allow us to live in, in freedom. Who's the only one who can do that? God, through his, the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. So a proper understanding of our shame for sin actually will, will lead us to what Carson says is boldness in prayer that follows in the wake of the joyful knowledge that we have been accepted by a holy God because of his grace alone. So shame, if we are truly understanding the gospel rightly, shame of the sins we commit can drive us to prayer, can drive us to the cross. So shame, even shame over our, our, our sin, should never lead to a lack of prayer in the Christian life. The last excuse is that we're sometimes content with mediocrity so we don't pray. I don't know why. I don't think it was intended this way, but I read this section and just could not stop laughing. So it's definitely not intended that way, but it's funny. Okay. I can't really articulate, articulate it better than Carson, so I'm just going to quote him at length for what he's talking about. Again, this is not supposed to be fun. Okay. He writes, Some Christians want enough Christ to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced. They genuinely cling to basic Christian orthodoxy, but do not want to engage in serious Bible study. They value moral correctness, especially of the public sort, but do not engage in war against inner corruptions. They fret over the quality of the preacher's sermon, but do not worry much over the quality of their own prayer life. Such Christians are content with mediocrity. 
So how does God's word respond to this type of, of person, this type of mediocre or person, thank you for laughing, we could call it lukewarm living. It's really a serious thing, though. Well, Carson goes to James 4. I think we could go to a lot of places. James 4, because he's tying this, this mediocrity, what we could call lukewarm faith, to worldliness. Typically, this rises in the Christian because of worldliness and a closeness with the world, which James 4 is all about. James 4, James gives a strong warning against worldliness. The point of the passage is there's actually no lukewarm Christian. There is no Christian that has one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God, at least in our ultimate allegiance. There's times when we do live that way. Christians can live that way. Um, But the text is clear. If you want to be friends with the world, meaning to give your devotion, your allegiance to it, then you will have an enemy of God. You will make yourself an enemy of God. Therefore, we need to submit ourselves to God, give our full devotion, our full allegiance to God and His kingdom. That's James's point. So if we, which again can happen to a true Christian, but if we feel ourselves content with not going deep with God or, or pursuing meteoroc- meteor- oh, not meteorology, mediocrity, thank you, if we, if we feel that occurring in us, which inevitably leads to or results in a lack of prayer, we need to, to check ourselves. This is a strong warning. Because the truth is, sometimes we ne- neglect to pray because we're living too closely in alignment with the world, with worldliness, which inevitably results in a lack of prayer. And we need to be fully aware that this can happen. In that sense, our our lack of prayer could be a diagnostic test for any of these excuses, but this one in particular can be a diagnostic test that that our priorities are misaligned, that something's wrong in our devotions, that we may be running too closely to the world and the world's desires and the world's goals, that our affections are being influenced by corrupt sources. A product of that, one product of that, will be a lack of communion with God, a lack of prayer with God. So we must guard against it. So that's all the excuses he he brought forth in chapter 7. So I'll pause here. Any questions, comments? Maybe have you thought of some excuses you found yourself having for a lack of prayer. This is a time to be super vulnerable if you want to be publicly vulnerable. Yes. It's a very, I think it's a very helpful chapter that Carson lays out the excuse and then just very practical solutions and Bible passages we can go to. Yeah, and like a good antidote against that is I like that idea of functional atheism. Like you're not living in line with your confession. You're not ordering your life in line, not you specifically, the collective us, y'all. Living in, in, in light of what you confess as being a Christian, which is that we're totally dependent on God. We, we, we're, we're dependent on him for, for all things. So it only makes sense to then pray to him. And that can be a helpful 
solution or help to a, a lack of prayer. I think that's Carson's argument. I think it's right. That, that's good. That's a good lesson of, of, and we've talked about this before in here, I can't remember which study, but of tying our scripture reading with our prayer, and that's one of the benefits of it, right? It kind of stirs, reading God's word can have the effect of stirring our affections and, and making our, our prayer times more, more enjoyable. That's really helpful. Yeah. Did y'all hear her question? It, it was, okay, Andrea heard it, then y'all heard it. Um, I think this, this is a really good question, and he's kind of touched on this a little bit about Paul's statements of praying without ceasing, those kind of, so that tends, for me, that means I think it's, it's both and. There should be times of kind of private devotion, soul focus, but also I think it's really appropriate and helpful to pray doing the mundane tasks of life, or driving, taking a shower, doing dishes, Although I have to focus really hard on doing dishes. <laughs> or else, I, yeah. Yeah, cooking, I, yeah. <laughs> and then Dick lets you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't, we can't. Neglect our, our, our tests that God has given us to do well here. That's for sure. I think you would be agreeing with a lot of what Carson was saying in the chapter if you didn't read it. All right. Anything else we can move on? Um, we'll probably just get to a little bit of chapter 8 here, and then we'll finish chapter 8 next time. But again, chapter 8, Carson's really seeking to provide... Uh, good responses of how we should respond when we find ourselves in those seasons or in those times of making excuses for not praying. And he does so by analyzing a prayer from Paul in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. You can be turning there if you'd like. And as you're there, I'll read a quote from Carson that explains why he chose this prayer to address spiritual dryness or the excuses for not praying. He says, Few of Paul's prayers have a greater potential to help us surmount the hurdles of spiritual dryness and lack of faith than the one in Philippians 1, 9-11. It can overcome our excuses for prayerlessness. And he's going to explain kind of why that's the case throughout the chapter. Unfortunately, we're probably not going to get to the reason this time, so it's just going to be kind of a cliffhanger. But the reason, at least the initial reason Carson gives for this, is that Paul is praying for what is excellent, or the best things. He's praying for what is excellent, for the, for the Philippians to pursue what is excellent. And by, ver- I mean, and by extension, all believers to prefer- pursue what is ex- excellent. Which Carson's going to argue that will inherently help drive out our excuses for not praying. Because we are dwelling on, we are pursuing the best things. The most excellent things. Reread Paul's prayer, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we can see, just based on the structure, this is very similar to the prayers that we've already covered from Paul. At one level, Paul's asking for the Philippians' love to abound more and more. That should be very familiar language to us if we've, if we've been following Carson's book. This is what, what Paul typically prays for Christians. But Carson points out what makes this unique, or this formulation of the prayer unique, is that the love for which Paul prays is not the end goal of the prayer, but the love is a means to an end, which is that their love would increase so that they may be able to discern or approve what is excellent. So though Paul is most definitely praying for the Philippians' love to increase, the argument is that the petition is so closely tied to a different end, which is that they may be able to grow in knowledge and have discernment of what is excellent. Now, this is where Paul says this prayer can be a solution to overcoming our excuses for not praying. And that's because Paul is not satisfied with a mediocre Christian life, or by extension, a mediocre prayer life. For the Philippians to to be content with their own excuses for not praying or being spiritually dry. He desires for them, for all Christians, to think on. To, to contemplate, be able to discern what is excellent, excellent things. So thinking back to the excuses Carson brought up, I think this is an easy antidote to the I'm too busy to pray excuse. Because there's inherent value and, and benefit to pausing, using, using our thoughts and knowledge to, to ascertain, to discern what is best, what is excellent. And the only way we can do that, by Paul's example here, is by praying for it. So there's great benefit in the Christian life in doing that, and Paul thinks that's so much so that that's why he's praying it for the Philippians. But this leads to the question I think we should be asking of the text, the question that we're not going to answer this morning, but you can come back. And that's what is, what is the excellent things he's talking about? What are the excellent things that we're to be thinking on, that we should be praying towards. Carson gives three clues that the text gives us to answer this question. You know what, maybe I'm just going to stop here. We'll do the three clues next time, and then we'll... Because <laughs> I'm not going to get through one clue, and then it'll be, you'll forget, and I'll have to re-say it anyways. Okay, any final questions or comments? I knew when I wrote this, I'm like, this is going to just end poorly, but oh well. That's good. Good job, Marty. <laughs> All right. Next, next week, Seth Thomason, we're actually going to take a break from this study again, but Seth Thomason's going to teach chapter four of the Kevin DeYoung book about the doctrine of Scripture. Taking God at His word. You guys are dismissed. <laughs>